Okay. You're going through Genesis and that's a pretty interesting thing to be doing. And uh, I'm not too sure if you're the author of the Bible whether you include some of these stories. Um, in the chapters we're going to look at this week and next week there are some pretty raw stories there. And uh, the Bible tells life as it is. And those stories are given to us for a range of reasons. So there's two key players today, Abraham and Lot. Abraham is the uncle of Lot and they are very diverse in what they have done in life. So the chapters we're going to look at today more or less can be broken down like this. There's a big barbecue. There's baby talk. There's bad news. Sodom, which is sex city. The order to get out of there and then judgment day on that city. So those are some of the things we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 18 and we're going to read from verses or 1 through to the end of the chapter. But I thought one way of handling this today was to actually break it up and to talk about each section as we go. So Genesis chapter 18 and reading from verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of memory while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. It's about midday, he's having siesta. Abraham looked up and spotted three men standing thereby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of the tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Abraham said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be bought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. Now notice what goes on here. I'm not too sure how many women would like guests to turn up in the middle of the day when you're having a midday siesta and suddenly you've got to get a meal ready. So this is what happens. Talk about panic merchants. They are. So Abraham hurried to the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three measures of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under the tree. What do you do with unexpected guests? When we lived in Italy as missionaries, when you called at somebody's home, the first thing they would always do is to offer you a drink. And usually that was some sort of alcoholic drink, some sort of spirit. But come in a little wee glass like this and that was their way of making you welcome initially. And if they didn't do that, that was offensive to the visitor. Now if you call it somebody unexpectedly in Australia, what sort of a welcome do you get? And in what way are you affirmed that you're welcome? Now Abraham has these three visitors, one of whom is God and two angels. It tells us that in the first verse that we read. So God fronts up at the doorstep, if you like, of Abraham's tent and there's sheer panic because Abraham wants to make these guests welcome 
And so he goes through this extravagant preparation. Now just think of you, Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Abraham says, now quick, make some bread. Now this is not just one tiny loaf. The amount of flour that he asks her to make into bread is huge. Almost as much bread as Baker's Delight sends out in one morning. It's a massive amount, but there's only three guests. And so there's this huge extravagant banquet. He kills a special calf and so on. He wants these folks to know that you are welcome at my tent, in my life. Now you put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's shoes. If God came knocking at your door today, how are you going to respond? How are you going to make God welcome in your home? What are you going to do to show that you want him to feel welcome? What would be your response? Now the interesting thing is that Jesus said to us as Christians, I'm always with you. So actually he is in your home. Whether you recognise that or not, if you're there, he's there, if you're a Christian. How do we make God welcome in our lives? In what way do we show appreciation? Or do we just ignore him? and make no fuss about the fact that he calls. So the chapter goes on. So he's asked, where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already old, and well advanced in years. The previous chapter you've been told that Abraham's 100 and she's 90. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid and so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, you did laugh. Now this is an interesting couple. We've got a couple of days celebrating the fact that one wife is pregnant. Now I'm not too sure who's the oldest man here today. Is anybody over 80 who's a male here today? You are, two. Anybody over 90? 90, okay. How old are you, sir? My mum's going to turn 97 in September this year. Now you imagine this gentleman, if he'd had three more birthdays. He's 100 and his wife is 90. You don't look 90 if you're his wife. (laughs) Now the, the possibility of somebody having a child at that age defies logic, doesn't it? I had a niece that did a family tree on my mother's side. 
We always used to wonder who Granny Morgan was. We were never told and she was just referred to as Granny Morgan. And my parents, my mother's maiden name was Watson. So where did Granny Morgan fit in? She didn't have the surname Watson, she had Morgan. Well our family tree showed that great granddad Watson in New Zealand had married and had a couple of kids and his first wife dies. So he remarries and his second wife has a couple of kids and then she dies. So he remarries a third time and they didn't have any children but the third wife dies. And then he marries a fourth wife and they have some kids and then she dies. (laughs) And then he marries this lady who's called Granny Morgan. Now, great-granddad Watson was 67 when he fathered his last child. And obviously, Granny Morgan must have been quite a young lady when she married great-granddad Watson. And he dies, so she remarries. But here's this couple, and God had said to them a number of years beforehand you're going to have a son, the pair of you. And through that son, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. God made a promise to them. But you know, Abraham and Sarah don't take that on board. And I think we're like them. You know, God's given us a whole range of promises, but do we take them on board? Do we really believe that God can do this? When God asks the question, is anything too hard for God? And the answer is no. Now that's not a blind promise that God will do anything that you demand. That relates to the fact that he had promised that this couple are going to have a son. And what seemed humanly impossible... Sarah's past menopause. So theoretically, humanly speaking, physically, she cannot have a son. But God had promised years and years before him, you will have a son. So he reverses her menopause and she's going to have a son. Yeah, it's very interesting. When God had told Abraham this in the previous chapter that you probably looked at last week, He says this, reiterates this to Abraham. He says here in Genesis 17, Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come out from her. Abraham fell down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? Now the interesting thing is Abraham's not rebuked for his laugh. He says, this is just ridiculous, stupid. But interesting enough, Sarah is challenged in our chapter today about the fact that she laughed. And so God reiterates this promise, you will have a son. And it's going to happen by this time next year. Now if God had told you something like this as plainly as this, He is standing there, he's telling Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son by this time next year. 
wouldn't they take that on board? Well, next week you'll find out they didn't. You think, how stupid can you get? Here's God standing with these folk, telling them this, underlining it, reiterating it, repeating it. You're going to have a son. Now, do you think God keeps his promises? Do you think God keeps his word? Can we really believe God? We've sung about God being faithful today. But do you really believe that? Do we believe that all that God has promised, that not one of those promises is too hard for him to bring about? 2 Peter says this, Grace and peace to be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See, what does a promise do? When you promise something, what does it do? What effect does it have on us? How do we respond to that emotionally? Now, if it's something pretty important that's promised, that fills us with hope, doesn't it? I can remember my sister Dylan, and she had been promised something that was going to come at Christmas time. And um, it was a doll. Now, to me, that didn't mean much. I got a football. But I can still remember her cries of delight. Christmas morning, she opens this parcel and she yelled out, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. Now, for weeks she had dreamed about getting this little doll. That's what she thought about. But she believed that promise that that was what was going to happen. And so that made her days happy. It transformed those days. Now, God has given us a whole range of promises. But notice why. You see, if you hang on to these promises, if you believe them, you're not going to do as Lot does. You're not going to behave like him. So what God promises enables us to escape the evil that's in the world through our knowledge of God. So what has God promised? Now, Raph mentioned this. He says, I will remember your sins no more. Now, do you believe that your track record of all the things that you've done to violate anything that's wrong in God's eyes, that God has eradicated that? That it's done with, it's gone. Or are you living your life trying to make up for what you've done wrong? Are you trying to work out your own atonement for the things that you regret and you wish had never happened? That fill you with shame and guilt and you're trying to make up to God or to whoever for what you've done wrong. But you and I cannot undo our track record. We wish we could, but we can't reverse history. It's locked into history. And God says of our sinful history, 
All forgiven. It's done with. When God says, I remember your sins no more, it means this, that God is always aware of what we've always done, but he'll never bring it up and throw it in your face and take it out on you. You see, when we don't forgive somebody, it keeps on being thrown up in our face, don't it? doesn't it? And we remember the dirty wretch or whoever it was that did us wrong. But for God, he's never provoked again by what we've done wrong. It's covered under the blood of Christ. And then God says, I will never leave you. Now do we believe that? Or do you feel today that God's abandoned you, left you in the lurch, walked out on you? But his promise is, I won't leave you. So that in our darkest days, our darkest nights, when everything seems so bleak, you know, God's still there. Now another promise, which we all probably are aware of, God, Jesus says, I will come again. Now what's that going to mean to us? Do we really hang on to that promise? Does it make a difference to the way we live our day, our week, run our business, care for our family? Jesus says, I will come again. Nobody knows the day of the hour, but I'm coming. And there are other promises that we could probably look at today. God keeps his word. Nothing's too hard for God to fulfil in terms of his promises. Genesis 18 verse 16 When the men got up to leave they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The word outcry there is an interesting word. It describes the cries of those who are oppressed and brutalised. Often we think of Sodom only in terms of their um, homosexuality and so on. Well, that was part of it. But it's not the whole story about Sodom. There were folk in that city who were oppressed and being brutalised. The outcry also is the word for the cry of an oppressed widow, the cry of the oppressed orphan, the cry of an oppressed servant. It was also used in the cries of Israel and Egypt. And so someone said, in their hearts in in Sodom no good existed and in their cities no God. So verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous people in it? 
Be it far from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. But once again Abraham spoke to him. What if there's only forty that are found there? He said, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty are found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, but what if only twenty be found there? He said, for the sake of twenty, I will not destroy the city. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. What if only ten can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy the city. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Why does God reveal his secret to Abraham? Well, these verses tell us. Because all the nation is going to be blessed for him. And that's why he wants to let Abraham in on what's going to happen. And you know, God has told us in advance a whole range of things that he intends to do. He intends to create a new heavens and a new earth. He intends to rain down judgment on the earth. That Jesus is going to come again. That we're going to live with Christ forever in heaven. We're going to reign with Christ. We're going to judge angels. There's a whole range of things that God has told us beforehand of what he's going to do. And so he tells Abraham, listen, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. But then also, he says, one of the reasons why he discloses what's going to happen, Abraham's teaching responsibility He told them these things so that he would teach his children what is right and just so that they might enjoy God's blessing. See, God is saying, listen, I'm going to wipe this place out. He wants Abraham to know that so that he can teach his kids what sort of God is God. He wants them to be able to do that. I don't know if you like Calvin and Hobbes, but I do. Here, Dad, I'd like you to sign this form and have it notarised. I, the undersigned Dad, attest that I have never parented before. Look out, Pat. And insofar as I have no experience in the job, I am liable for my mistakes and I agree to pay for any counselling in perpetuity that Calvin may require as a result of my parental ineptitude. Calvin. I don't see how you're allowed to have a kid without signing one of those. Now then, the task of being a parent is pretty onerous, isn't it? 
and pretty scary. I can remember when my sister had her first child, a boy, and I visited her in hospital and she says, I am so scared, I'm terrified. I said, what do you mean? To have brought a kid into such a world as ours, was I being irresponsible? As she thought about the society and the world in which we live, the fact of bringing a new life into that world just scared the daylights out of her and the responsibility that she would have. So Abraham's role as a parent, if you like little acrostics, you can think of P-I-M-D. Pray for them if you're a parent. He's to instruct his kids. He's to model Christ. He's to discipline them. Just four little tasks to pray, instruct, model and discipline. Jeremy, this is another little comic strip. Jeremy, we don't make rules to restrict you. We make rules to keep you safe. See, sometimes we think that God's regulations, God's prohibitions, when he says don't go there, don't do this, put, you know, pursue this, Sometimes we get the idea that God's being mean, but he's not. Those things are there for our blessing. And so Abraham's questions. I don't know if you've ever bargained with God. Because he knows that his nephew and his family live in this city. And he doesn't want them to get swallowed up in God's judgment. And so here he is brave enough to confront God and talk to God. And he's almost apologetic in the way that he goes about this. And he starts off, you know, with a number 50. Surely God won't wipe out the city for 50 or 45, 40, 30, 10, 20, 10. And he stops. Now it's interesting. Having prayed, requested, and so on, he stops. I wonder why he stopped. Now in the earlier chapters, Abraham had rescued some of the Sodomites when some of the other kings invaded. So he knows something about the city and the inhabitants. He can't imagine that there's less than ten people who are righteous in that city. To him that defied logic. There's not ten. Less than ten. But you know, he did the right thing. He brought his concerns to God. And although he's got this dilemma about God's forthcoming judgment, he says, will not the judge of the earth do right? Now that's an important statement because God does right by each individual person. I was talking to Terry Hutchison yesterday. He talked about the fact of Garth visiting somebody that was about on the point of death that Terry had talked to Garth about. And Garth had visited this person a couple of times and it wasn't clear whether the man made a profession of salvation or not. But this verse is important. God will do right by each individual. 
See, God knows our hearts. The way he's going to respond to you is going to be absolutely correct and just and right. And that's true for any individual. Well, these visitors arrive in Sodom and Lot invites them in and uh, we'll pick up the reading around about verse 4. So all the folk gather at the door of Lot after he's given them this hospitality and are demanding that he gives the visitors out to them. So at the bottom of the screen there, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. There's two ways we can understand this. We can understand it just as the words say there or as it's been suggested Lot is trying to, to, to shake up these people's conscience. So you can interpret his words these ways. Lot's response can be interpreted as, I would sooner as have you violate my daughters as violate the guests I've taken in and offered hospitality. Now whether that twist on is right or wrong, it doesn't matter. But the point is that these guys, men and boys, have no conscience about what they're demanding. They want these visitors so they can gang rape them. So it's a pretty filthy sort of city, filthy mindset. And so they said, get out of the way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play judge. We will treat you worse than them. Well, they tried to get past Lot in the door and the angels pulled him back in and shut the door and they're struck with blindness. Then the Bible says, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So he hurries out to two guys who are obviously engaged to his daughters. He said, listen, we've got to get out of here. But it's sad. The sons-in-law thought he was joking. His remarks are offensive and in bad taste. She's got no reputation with his prospective sons-in-law. And so they're told to get out of there, take his wife and his daughters and, and get out of there. Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Lot is so reluctant. He said, no, 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 no. I just want to go to this little town over here. So actually they go to a place called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar and the sun had risen over the land, Lord rained down, burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. Thus he overthrew the cities of the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation of the land. But Lot's wife, who followed behind him, looked back longingly and turned back and she became a pillar of salt.
Ezekiel describes the conditions within Sodom. He said her daughters had arrogance. They were stuck up. If you're an Aussie, you would say they're stuck up bitches. The Bible's not quite as bad as that. But they're arrogant. And they have lots of food. And they're careless. These folk are filthy rich. But they don't stop and help the poor and the needy. They just turn a blind eye to those in their society who need help. They just ignore them. They're haughty and then they just commit all these abominations before God. Luke says of Sodom they rejected God's word. God's word means nothing to these people. Jeremiah says of Sodom they committed adultery, they were liars, they are better criminals. They were homosexuals, they were guilty of gang rape. And God says, therefore, I removed them. You know, there's parts of our city that are like this. Could you imagine if all of Melbourne was as bad as this? This is one wicked place. Folk who are filthy rich, who just care for pleasure and just live for it. The Bible declares, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. See, that's why the story is here. If you're a person today who does not know Christ as your Saviour, this is your future. This is your destiny. And that's sobering. That's sobering. It doesn't need to be. If God rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. I don't know what your situation is as a man. I have no idea if God is saying to you, as he said to Lot, get out. I've got no idea. Here's a guy that's so entangled in the city. He sits at the gate, he's one of the civic leaders, he's a judge. But he lost his credibility as a Christian. To respect his sons-in-law, he's a laughing stock. But the New Testament says every day he was upset by what was around him, by the evil and so on, but he doesn't leave it. Because it was a place to make money. And he's rich, he's got standing in the society. And he stays. Fool that he was. Timothy says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation in a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. See, Lot had looked at the plains where Sodom and Gomorrah were and he thought, wow, if I go there I'm going to make it. But he loses his family, he loses his reputation. The Bible says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, eager for money, who have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And you know there's Christians like that. 
eager to get rich. And then to be trapped by foolish desires, pierced themselves with many griefs. The Bible said Lot was distressed every day in his righteous soul. There was no joy in being a rich man in Sodom. There's no pleasure in that. And that can be true for us. And so the Bible's example is to us. You, man of God, listen. Flee from all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. You know, we live in a city which people want to party most weekends. Lots of them flood into the centre of the city to do that. Well, in Sodom, they didn't just party at the weekend, it was just one big party. And God says to you, as a man, as a woman, don't go there. Flee from that. Because it's going to destroy you. It'll ruin your life. Just create a misery. And like Lot, you could end up living in a cave in the mountains. He's a pathetic example of a Christian. A man of faith. A negative example. Don't be like Lot. So are you going to believe and act on God's promises? Will you accept that God is just and righteous? Like Abraham, will you entreat God on behalf of others? Are you prepared to abandon sin city, whatever that is in your life? Or will you stay in like Lot, stay in a sinful context? It's silly if you do. Or are you going to be swept away on God's judgment day and be doomed forever? Because Jesus, when he talks about this, says, remember Lot's wife. She didn't just look back, she turned back. She wanted to go back to that. She was not a righteous lady. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the the frankness in which you give us insight into these people's lives so that we might learn, be encouraged, be warned, listen to what you have to say to us through these characters. Father, we pray that you might grant us a faith that is unwavering, that accepts your word, your promises, so that we won't be pulled in by the evil that surrounds us every day. Lord, grant us the strength to get out of situations which we know that are wrong and unsavoury. And so we ask for your grace in each of our lives and we ask for that in Christ's name. Amen.